You're listening to the Revolution Church Podcast. To learn more, including our gathering times in Crossville, Tennessee, visit us at CrossvilleRevolution.com. Well, I'd like to start out today as we're in the third week of our series, Church on the Move. And if you're new to Revolution Church, this is your first time here, we're kind of taking a break from what we typically do. Typically, what we like to do is go verse by verse through entire books of the Bible or large sections of Scripture. Uh, But we're getting ready to move as a church, literally. And even though it's just a mile down the road, we feel like we need to prepare as a church to do so. If you've ever moved before, uh, my wife and I, we moved one time to a new house that was 10 minutes away. And man, we about killed each other in the move. It's hard. It's stressful. There's a lot of change. And uh, you have to sit down sometimes and like look at each other and go, why are we doing this again? And that's what we're doing during this series because sometimes when you get stressed out, you turn on the people you love the most. And so we're doing this series, Church on the Move, just as revision casting, reminding us what we're doing, instructing us what we need to do as we move. I heard a story uh, about a family that was having problems with their two young sons. Uh, Their name was Mason and Ian. I don't know why that was their names, but they had an 8-year-old named Mason and a 10-year-old named Ian. And these kids were just out of control. The parents were at their wits' end. They tried everything to get them straightened out, but they were just causing problems, causing trouble. Well, they weren't a church family. They never went to church, but they heard about this pastor that worked with young kids and uh, worked really well with them and had straightened a lot of kids out. So they said, let's give it a shot. Uh, So they take them to this pastor's office, and the youngest one goes into the pastor's office first alone, and the other one's sitting out in the lobby. He sits in a chair, and the pastor looks at him, and the first question he asks is, where is God, young man? Well, this little eight-year-old boy looks at him like, man, I, I don't know what to say, so he's just quiet. pastor raises his voice even louder, where is God, young man? This kid doesn't know what to say. He's eight years old. His eyes get even bigger. He's even more intimidated. The pastor gets up, puts his hands on this little eight-year-old boy's chair, looks him straight in the eyes and says, Young man, I asked, where is God? After he gets done saying that, this eight-year-old ducks underneath him, runs out, grabs his 10-year-old brother. They run all the way to their house. They get in their closet, close the closet door. Ten-year-old boy looks at the eight-year-old boy and says, What are you doing? He says, man, we're in trouble now. God is missing and they think we did it. It's an old church story. Probably heard that before. Ian and Mason, you guys don't do that, you know. Sometimes in church, especially if you're involved in a church and really love a church and you get comfortable, when changes come, You can feel like somebody stole something. You know, God didn't go anywhere, but those boys were so fearful because they thought maybe he was missing and they were going to get blamed for it. And that's the same thing we do. When a church grows, you feel like something's getting stolen. When a church moves into a new facility, sometimes you can feel like something's getting stolen. The title of my sermon today is, Who Stole My Church? You know, Jesus, one of the foundational principles of the gospel that we believe here at this church is that when you accept Christ, you are no longer slaves to the world and you're no longer a slave to sin. The idea is encapsulated in this phrase, Christ has set us free. In fact, if you comb through the gospels, you'll see that Jesus 
regularly talked about freedom in Christ or Christian freedom or Christian liberty. Jesus, for instance, was quoted as saying this, and you guys know this. You might be able to help me finish it. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth, say it with me, will set you free. Another time, Jesus is quoted as saying, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. No perfect people allowed. Everybody has practiced sin, right? The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Love that passage. One time Jesus quoted the Old Testament, basically identifying himself to the Hebrew people as the Messiah. And he said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So we know that knowing Jesus is not religion, it's freedom. It's not rules, it's liberty in Christ. Well, what I want to do today is I want to teach a little bit on exactly what it means to have Christian freedom. And we're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 23 through 33. Now, the book of Corinthians was written by a man named Paul who wrote it to a church that was in a city called Corinth. And the best way I can describe Corinth to you in modern-day terms is, uh, let me just ask this. How many of y'all are from California? Raise your hand. Anybody in here from California? Look at all the people that are from California. I've heard overwhelmingly over the past four or five years that the reason people leave California and come to Tennessee is because California is going a little nutty. Like, and I'm not making fun. I'm just saying, like, they'll accept anything out there. It's like the Wild West of morals, so to speak. So I'm not saying you're that way, but, but California is generally known in that sense. Well, that was Corinth. It's written to the Corinthians, but it may as well have been written to the Californians. Does that make sense, y'all? This was a rough bunch. This, this was a group in the church that was a rowdy bunch that grew up in a culture that was completely broken around them. And as a result, they were constantly pushing Christian freedom. The things that they could have freedom to do, the line was always being pushed past what was acceptable. Well, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is attempting to teach these Christians how do you balance your Christian freedom with your Christian responsibility. So we've got three points today. Hopefully I'll get through them pretty quick. It's going to be a barn burner today, okay, y'all? So it might be convicting, uh, but let's just look at the Scripture, okay, y'all? I'm doing the best I can to keep it in the context of what Scripture says. So let's start in verse 23. Everybody with me say, I am. The Bible says, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. And then in verse 24, this is the heartbeat of the passage, and this is the heartbeat of Christian freedom. You're going to see this repeated in the third point, along with the why behind why we do this. Look at verse 24. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. 
The first point is Christian freedom means, and this is going to sound very weird because we've grown up in America where we, we have an idea of what freedom is. Christian freedom means it's not about you. Everybody look at your neighbor and say, it's not about you. Many people in the church, particularly in America today, will say something along the lines of, I have Christian freedom, which means I get to do whatever I want and no one can hold me accountable and no one dare judge me for it. And in the first point, we see Paul pointing out that is completely wrong. You've heard us before when we've taught on secondary issues in our church uh, quote the theologian Augustine who said, in essentials, we must have unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. And so the idea is there's things in Scripture that are orthodoxy. They're basic beliefs. And to be a Christian, we have to be on the same page with those things. Jesus is the Messiah. The only way to heaven is through Jesus. The virgin birth, uh, those types of things. Creation by God and those types of things. We must have unity in those things. But there's a whole lot of stuff that falls under Christian liberty, non-essentials in other words. It's like the scripture doesn't condemn it and say it's sinful, but maybe even in a church context, in a cultural context or something like that, we've condemned it and said it's sinful. Paul is saying Christian freedom comes with Christian responsibility. He's teaching us that when you fall into these gray areas that technically are okay, but they might not be beneficial, there's three questions you ask yourself. Number one, does it glorify God? In other words, is it good for God? Number two, does it edify others? And this is the order you go in. You think, what will it do for God first? What will it do for others second before you even think about yourself? So number two, does it edify others? In other words, is it good for others? Number three, does it amplify the work of God in my life? In other words, is it good for me? Paul's telling us, and we'll get into this you know, a little later as we go through this passage, that there are limits to Christian freedom. And the limits are considering where you are and who you are with. In other words, we don't just ask whether we can do something we also ask whether that something that we want to do is loving. Now, the book of Philippians, Paul writes to the church in Philippi, and he repeats again, you'll see this thread all through the New Testament, this idea of thinking others more than you think of yourselves. Don't be selfish. Listen to what it says in Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. Last week, my son and I were in Knoxville looking for something to do. And uh, we found that the city of Knoxville has put a lot of money into making uh, mountain bike trails on hundreds of acres in South Knoxville near the Imes Trail. We don't own mountain bikes, so we went and rented a couple of mountain bikes right next to the trail. And when we rented these mountain bikes, they gave us a map of all these hundreds of acres of trails, and they ranged anywhere in difficulty from like easy, medium, hard, extremely hard, so on and so forth. 
and so we got on our bikes, and we set off in the woods to go down these trails. And if y'all know me, y'all know I'm a city boy. I'm from Knoxville. I grew up in the inner city. So I'm looking at this map, and I got no clue how to read this map. I'm like looking at it going, how, what trail are we on now? We're supposed to be here, and we're supposed to be there. I didn't grow up in the woods or nothing like that. You know what I mean? And so it seemed like every two minutes I was checking this map, and we were having to stop. And so I finally just said, you know what? Let's just go down these trails. Like I'm just going to fold this up, put it in my pocket, and let's just roll. So I head off, and Titus is right behind me. Well, we end up going down this trail that's like straight down a mountain somehow. And there is all these little, I don't even know what you call them, these places where literally we're going about 30 to 40, maybe 50 miles an hour on mountain bikes. I hadn't ridden a mountain bike in it forever. We're going around these curves where we're sideways with, you know what I mean? And we're going through the air and going off these jumps where two wheels are coming off the ground. And you can't stop, especially if somebody's behind you. The whole time I was waiting to hear Titus crash and start crying. But the whole time I was also thinking, if I stop, and I'll probably crash if I try to stop, but even if I try to stop, he's going to run into me and he'll crash. So I can't stop. We get all the way to the bottom of this thing where the trail splits again, and we look at the sign, and guess what trail we just went on was called? Hell's Run. Extremely, I'm not kidding. Extremely difficult. We didn't crash. The idea that Paul is putting out is when you're going down the road, you got to think of the people behind you more than you think of yourself. Did I want to stop? Absolutely. I was scared to death. I'm like, I'm about to die. You know what I mean? You're going to be preaching again. You know what I'm saying? Like, but I couldn't because I was thinking of my son more than I was thinking about what I wanted. That's us. Maybe you even go down hell's run sometimes in life. Even when you're going down hell's run, you think of others more than you think of yourselves, if that makes sense. Now, Paul's getting ready to teach this church something that's kind of interesting. Uh, He starts talking about meat that's been sacrificed to idols. And maybe this has confused you in the past if you've ever read through the Bible because we don't have meat marketplaces where there's uh, sacrifice meat to idols, and we have to make a decision, but hopefully we'll bring this home, and I'll explain this to where we can understand it. In verse 25, we continue. If y'all are with me, say, I am. He says, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever, there's an important note, an unbeliever, everybody say unbeliever, unbeliever invites you to a meal, and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? Point number two is Christian freedom is directly tied to Christian witnessing. Christian freedom is directly tied to reaching people for Christ and getting people saved and evangelism. Paul in the book of Corinthians talks about three categories of whether or not it's okay to eat meat that had previously been sacrificed to idols. The first category that he talks about previously in this passage, but I feel like to do this justice, I need to include it, 
is meat that is eaten in inside pagan temple rituals. In other words, inside pagan temples, there's some kind of ritual that they're going through, uh, and they're eating the meat when they make this sacrifice. Paul gives a resounding, no, don't eat that meat. Now, there's a simple reason he says this, and the reason is, in order for you to eat the meat that's uh, being sacrificed inside pagan uh, temple rituals, you have to participate in a pagan temple ritual and be inside the temple uh, that's worshiping a false god to do so. So Paul's like, don't participate in idol worship and eat meat in those circumstances. The second thing that he makes very clear here is meat that's bought at a market that has previously been sacrificed to idols. Paul gives a resounding, yes, it's okay to eat it. Just buy it and eat it. It's no big deal. But thirdly, he talks about meat that is being served to you inside a lost person's home. And this meat, of course, has been previously sacrificed to idols. Well, Paul says it depends. It depends. It might be yes. It might be no. He says, yes, it's okay to eat it. If you're at a lost person's home, you guys are eating meat previously sacrificed to idols, and nobody says anything about it. In other words, it's just meat. Y'all are just eating meat, and that's all it is to everybody in the room, and nobody's offended by it. No big deal. He's like, sure, go ahead and eat your bacon. Go ahead and eat your pork chops. No big deal. But he says, don't do it for a couple of reasons. Paul, when he talks about the meat that is eaten in someone else's home, and it's okay to eat it, he uses a Greek word, I'm not going to try to pronounce it, but it starts with an H, and translated, it means sacrificial food. And so Paul says it's okay to eat sacrificial food, but he says it's not okay to eat the sacrificial food if it's, again, I'm not going to try to pronounce this Greek word, but it starts with an E, and translated, it means idle food. In other words, don't eat this meat if a lost person gets meat that's previously been sacrificed to an idol and inside their home, they're using this meat as some sort of pagan ritual. He says, don't participate in that idol worship and that pagan ritual if that's what they do. Secondarily, Paul says, if someone is with you eating at this person's house, and they raise a question about whether or not you should eat it, don't eat it if it offends them. So for the Hebrews, it would be you have a Christian brother or sister with you maybe. Somebody's trying to serve you some bacon. They look at you and say, we're not supposed to eat bacon. Don't eat it in front of them because it's not worth offending them. If somebody that's lost says, I can't believe you would eat Little Debbie's because they're full of chemicals, don't eat it if it offends them. The big idea that Paul is pointing out here is don't participate in idol worship and eat meat as a result of some ritual and participate in idol worship and don't offend someone with a conscience issue. But if you're just eating meat, there's not some kind of weird voodoo curse on that meat if it was sacrificed to an idol. It's okay to eat it if that's the case. Now, that might be confusing because, again, we don't have markets where we're buying meat and, you know, there's not a whole bunch of temples in Crossville where pagans are sacrificing stuff and then we've got to make a decision about whether or not we're going to eat it. But 
it is very fitting, especially considering we're in the South, that the Bible uses eating as an example to not offend someone. Probably almost everyone in here has a grandparent, great-grandparent, or maybe a parent, that when you go to their house, the first thing they ask you is, are you hungry? And you could look at them and you could say, no, I just ate a whole pizza and I'm not hungry, okay, Grandma? And they look at you, and even though they heard that, they're like the mom from the big fat Greek wedding. Okay, I'm going to make you something to eat. Y'all know what I'm saying? Maybe people in here have a grandma that looks at you, and even though you're rocking 30 40% body fat, she's like, boy, you're skin and bones, girl. Let me make you something to eat. And she goes and makes you a plate of food. Anyone in here with any sense knows that if your grandma makes you a plate of food, even if you're full, even if you're on a diet, you eat every last bite of that food. You clean your plate. Why? Because there is no way you will offend your grandmother by not eating the food she has prepared for you, if you got any sense. Does that make sense to everybody? This is the idea that Paul's bringing out. You're thinking of others more than you think of yourself. Somebody makes you something that looks really gross, but you can tell it's going to offend them. You better suck it up and hold your nose and eat it. Somebody looks at you and says, again, the little Debbie example, you know, I can't believe you eat whatever. Don't eat it. Even if your conscience is clear with eating it, don't eat it in front of them, if that makes sense. This is really Paul putting into application the great commandment. If you remember in Mark chapter 12, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is like this. And this is the application portion of the second part of the great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than this. Loving your neighbor, that's what this is. You're thinking of your neighbor more than you think of yourself. Now, let me give you a couple of examples that are the big examples in our culture. They're the ones that the church has struggled with for years when it comes to Christian freedom. And typically a church takes a hard stance on one side or another, and we're seeing today it's not so black and white. I'm getting ready to say some things from this platform that maybe you've never heard a preacher say before. And you may be shocked at some of the things you're going to hear, uh, but oh well. Okay, so... Alcohol and tobacco, those are the ones. The Bible doesn't condemn them as sinful. Obviously, drunkenness is sinful. Okay, Obviously, addiction to tobacco can be sinful. But the Bible doesn't condemn those two things. But for years, particularly in the South, it's kind of weird because in California, they condemn tobacco because everybody owns vineyards. But in the South, everybody owns tobacco farms, so all the preachers dip, but everybody condemns drinking. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Am I right? Y'all know what I'm talking about. But do I have the freedom and the liberty to drink a beer? Do I have the freedom and the liberty to smoke a cigar? It depends. The situation you're in 
Is it beneficial to God? Is it beneficial to others? Is it beneficial to you? I'll give you a couple stories. A few years ago, we had just started the church, and uh, I was meeting with this hillbilly guy, redneck guy from Crossville, from the mountains of Crossville, good guy. And y'all know me, like I don't drink alcohol, uh, not because I have a conscience issue with it, just because it's like bad for recovery and I'm a workout guy and all that stuff and don't touch it. I do like non-alcoholic beer. So if you see me in the grocery store buying what looks like beer, it is non-alcoholic, okay? So don't be taking a picture, putting it up on Instagram, going, look what I saw Pastor Josh doing. <laughs> you know, freaking out, I'll be on the front page of the paper. But anyway, I'm not trying to be funny. I'm being serious, okay? So, so I was telling this guy that I was meeting with that day, this real redneck guy, that my kids had a cold that they couldn't get over. So he goes to his truck, and he gets two big mason jars. And one mason jar is a big jar of local honey. And in the other mason jar is stuff you could take wallpaper off the walls with. Y'all know what I'm saying? Cherry moonshine. He had made it all himself. I had a decision right then of whether or not I should say, I can't believe, don't you know I'm a pastor? I don't drink alcohol. I'm not taking that. Or this guy that I'm, I'm trying to win to the Lord to say, thank you so much. I mean, I know you could have sold this, but you, you care about me and you gave this to me. Thank you so much. Guess which one I did? I took it. I'm thinking of him more than I'm thinking of myself. In the same vein, had a guy one time struggling with alcoholism, comes to the church, gets saved, can't quit drinking, wants a counseling appointment. Hey, pastor, um, what if we just meet at a bar and do counseling? I'm like, are you smoking crack? You can't go near alcohol. You can't even go near the beer aisle. I'll never take you. I'm not even drinking Bush N.A. around you. I don't even want you to smell it. I'm thinking of him more than I'm thinking of myself. It's a group of guys in Rev Church that uh, enjoy a cigar every once in a while. And uh, I don't know how to do, but be real with you guys. So I'm sorry. If I'm, if I'm destroying your faith in me as your pastor, I don't know what to do because we're just trying to be biblical here. But um, I like to enjoy a cigar with them every once in a while. And they've bought me cigars. When they bought me cigars, you think I've looked at them and said, oh, man of the cloth, how dare you? No. In that setting, you know, it's actually one of the greatest evangelism tools I've had in the last year. Inviting people to smoke a cigar with me. Is it good for God? Does it edify others? Is it good for me? But guess what? There's somebody in my life that I love very much. They're in my inner circle. And I went to them and I said, they've been set free from uh, tobacco addiction. They used to smoke. I went to them and I sat in their office. They're on staff. And I said, if this offends you at all, I won't touch any cigars ever again. I won't get with these guys in the church. I'll put a, I'll put a Nix on it right now and won't do it anymore. And they're like, oh, no, it's fine. It doesn't offend me whatsoever. Does this make sense to everybody say amen? It's Christian freedom. It's Christian liberty. That's why I've been telling Pastor Brandon 
needs to start cheering for the balls. You know what I mean? We're pushing people away with that Georgia junk, man. You know what I'm saying? Like, in fact, if you see him today, tell him great sermon last week, but we still hate Georgia. Okay, y'all, just tell him that. We're called to love people, y'all. Sometimes that makes us uncomfortable. We're called to reach people with the gospel that are far from God. Jesus ate with sinners. He did things that were different, that were unheard of, because he had the freedom to do them. But he balanced his freedom perfectly with responsibility, if that makes sense, and that's what we've got to do. So I love y'all, and you know this. I love you very much, and you guys are so great about this, but allow me to say this. If you think we're called to try to make people vote the way we vote, You've completely missed what it means to love your neighbor. You know, I'd say to you, like, let me just give you some wisdom. You know how I feel about this. I feel very strongly. I've got my opinions and stuff. But if you're waiting on Washington to fix your problems, you're going to be waiting a long time. I don't care who's in. Jesus is the one that sets people free. Not a Republican, not a Democrat, not those things. If you think that we're called to convince people that vaccines are bad, is it too soon? Y'all okay? You've completely missed the boat about what it means to love people, what it means to think of others more than you think of yourself. If you think you're called to revolution, to have your own seat, that this stuff belongs to you. Hey, y'all, listen. Everybody's so excited that we have the theater until we move in. And the seats are different. I'm, I'm being serious. This is how it's going to feel. And if you think because you've been coming to Revolution Church for a long time, it means you get first dibs on which seat is yours at the movie theater. You know what I mean? Somebody stole my seat. They're in my seat. No. I'm just going to tell you all, listen, we're pretty sure that the first Sunday we move in over there, we think it's going to be standing room only. We could be wrong, but we think it could be standing room only. Guess who better be standing if it's standing room only? Y'all better give your seats up for people that are new. Because I'm just going to tell you, if I'm up there preaching and I see people standing in the aisle that are brand new, and some 20-year-olds are sitting there right next to them, not offering their seat to them, I'm going to lose my junk, okay, y'all? I may stop everything on the first Sunday and say, hey, y'all, get your butts up, you know what I mean? Especially the men in here. Get your rear ends up, guys. Be a man, you know? Think of others more than we think of ourselves. Some people have never been involved in someone's salvation story. Or you're in here and you haven't been involved in someone coming to Jesus in a long time. And the reason is, is because all you ever think about is yourself. You never think of others. 
Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. I got nine minutes to get through the last point. Y'all think I'm going to make it? Say amen. Yeah, y'all are lying. Verse 31, let's continue. You with me? Say I am. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble. Again, does it edify others? Is it good for them? Whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. And then here's that heartbeat repeated with the why behind it. For I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many. Why? So that they may be saved. Third point is selfishness leads to ineffectiveness. The Bible says it leads to stumbling. Essentially, that is ineffectiveness. You guys know that there are churches all over the country that think completely about themselves. And as a result, they never pass the baton to the next generation. They never leave a legacy. A legacy means that, that like when I'm dead, hopefully Revolution Church reaches more people than it ever did when I was alive. That's our prayer here at this church. Listen to James chapter 3, verse 16. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every single practice. Most churches, well, I want hymns. I want this kind of worship music. I want people to dress this way. I want people to have ties on. I want no one to bring coffee into the sanctuary because they may spill it. I don't want somebody wearing a ball cap when they get baptized. Is everybody with me? These are just examples I've seen in my ministry career, okay, y'all? There's a reason why the average attendance in most churches in America, if you include them all, is between 30 and 40 people. Only 5% of churches are growing and reaching people. The rest of them are plateaued or they are completely dead. It's because of selfishness. Listen, I'll, I'll tell you all this. At Rev Church, we don't always do things the way I want to. Some of y'all think I'm the big dog up here, but I'm not. I have to submit myself to what's best for others all the time. All the time. I've reached my grumpy old man stage. Y'all know what I'm saying? I'm 43 now, and like I don't get it anymore. I don't know how they minister to those kids over there. I don't know how they minister to students. If I was in the student ministry, I would punch one of these 13-year-olds in the face. You know what I mean? I love them, and I'm glad they're here. But I would be on the front page of the paper, you know what I mean? Like pastor punches student on a Wednesday night service because, I mean, I, I barely can't punch my own kids and their teenagers now. Y'all know what I'm saying? And I don't know how they do it. You know, I was, I was at a gas station and the Lord really convicted me. This has been years ago, but I'm getting my gas and this kid pulls up in a car that's been lowered to where he can't even go over speed bumps. You know what I'm saying? He's bumping music and you, he gets out. And his pants are down, his butt's hanging out, you know what I mean? And uh, y'all know what I'm talking about. And I'm sitting there just looking at him in disgust, like, man, this little punk. I hope he says something, you know what I mean? I'll go BJJ on him and UFC on him, but like, like what? look at him. Man, why is he dressed that way? Why is he playing that kind of music? Why is he talking like that? And the Lord really convicted me. Because all I was saying was, why can't he be more like me? Because it's all about me. 
They got to look like me. They got to act like me. They got to vote like me. They got to think like me. This is dying to yourself. Who stole my church? Who stole my church? We got different seats. Who stole my church? All these changes that are happening in the ministry. Who stole my church? Why does Pastor Josh not talk to me as much on Sundays anymore? Well, it's because we got twice the amount of people coming. And I love you, but if you've been saved by the blood of Jesus, the priority is people that don't know Christ. So don't get your panties in a wad. When I'm out there talking to lost people, I just don't have time. Why is the staff not available like they used to be? Because we've grown. We've got twice as many people. There's no way we could connect with anybody. Who are all these new people that don't look like me? It's so crowded. I had to park far away from the theater. And it's cold outside. I mean, I know I went to Nayland Stadium last week and walked four miles to get to the game, but I can't walk 200 feet to the front door. It's not Nayland Stadium, it's Nayland Sanctuary, by the way, okay? Because if you're willing to walk four miles to Nayland Stadium and complain about the parking at a church, you got some, I'm just telling you, you got some serious heart issues going on with your relationship with God. I was going to say bathrooms, but I think we'll have enough of those at the new theater. And the church said, amen. Got 12 bathrooms for each gender, so praise God. Complain, 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 complain. Me, 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 shut up. The Holy Spirit's saying to you today, listen, I, I struggle with it too, but the Holy Spirit's saying, shut up. Get out of the way. Let me save some people. Let me do something in Crossville that's never been done. Let me give you some scriptures. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 21, uh, Paul is speaking to the church in Philippi about sending Timothy to this church to pastor it. And this church has never met Timothy. And Paul is giving his qualifications and saying, this is why you'll love Timothy. And listen to what he says about Timothy. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for he looks out for their, for everyone else looks out for their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. He's like, let me tell you, you want Timothy to come and be your pastor because all he cares about is pleasing God first, and then he's going to be concerned about y'all second. Way down the list is his own interest. Proverbs eleven twenty five: a generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. Some of y'all come to church every Sunday. You read every Bible app there is. You know theology, but you're still depressed. You still can't break free of an addiction. You still can't get things straight in your life. You never found freedom. And the reason is, is because all you think about is yourself. As soon as you make the switch and start to think about others and washing some feet and loving on people and serving people like Pastor Brandon told us last week, you'll be amazed that when you start refreshing others, you too will be refreshed. Is everybody with me saying amen? The reason we do this is because Jesus is our best example of this. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. This is exactly what Jesus did. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Jesus is chilling up in heaven. He's good, hanging out with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And he comes down to be a man, to die for you. Who's he thinking of more? He's thinking of you. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve others. He's thinking of you. Here's where we're at, church. Put that last chart up. Here's the reality of where the church is today. I believe that church attendance is the best indicator of the strength of people's relationship to the one true God and to Jesus. You hear people say that the church I go to is I go for a hike on Sunday mornings. That's junk. Okay, y'all, like the Bible commands, the ecclesia, the gathering to get together. I've never known someone that grows in the Lord that is not connected to a body of believers. Now, that could be a house church. It doesn't have to be in the context like we're in here today. But There's a body of believers that people are connected to. Here's the stats. Here's what we have. Greatest generation born before 1928, 56% went to church. In other words, had a relationship with the one true God. The silent generation born 1928 to 45, 44%. The boomers, 46 to 64, 32%. Okay, boomer. Um, generation X, 65 to 80, 27% went to church. Millennials, 81 to 99, 18% went to church. Look at the drop-off. Gen Z, this is the best percentage I could find. It's probably actually less than 2%. Less than 5% go to church. These are your grandkids. These are your great-grandkids. These are the people that you love. I was talking to a grandparent one time. I didn't tell this in the first service, but I feel the need to say that in this service. I asked him, I said, you love your grandkids? Yeah. Would you be willing to take a bullet for them? Yeah. Would you be willing to die for him if you had to sacrifice yourself for him? Yes, I absolutely would. Then why won't you change your music style? Like you don't want him to come to church? You don't want him to know Jesus? Isn't that the most important thing? Oh. Now you can look at this and you can say, all my fears are, see, USA is going to hell in a handbasket. I knew it. Or you can look in this and see what I see. And it's what Pastor Brandon told us last week. The fields are ready for harvest. Man, Gen Z, they've never been in church. It's time for us to reach them. It's time for us to do the things that other people aren't willing to do to reach the people that no one else is reaching. God is looking for a group of people that will set themselves aside in order to reach the people that he wants to reach. And I'm just praying that Rev Church is those people. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you so much for this passage. God, I just pray for myself. What a passage for me. Took me to the woodshed this week. I want to preach a certain way, and I want to say certain things. And God, what I need to be doing when I'm on this platform is saying, what do your people need to hear? I'm a mouthpiece for you and a pipeline for you, so help me, God, to stay out of the flesh think of others more than I think of myself. I pray for our church, God, that we stay unified, that there is no division. Lord, sometimes before you grow a church, you prune a church. So maybe there's some folks that we love very much that 
They're not going to be down with the way we're doing it at the movie theater. And there's 130 churches in Crossford. They can find exactly where they fit in. They can have revival in their life. They can, they can be excited again about what they're doing for the Lord. And we pray they find that place if that's true. Uh, but God, you know our heart. Uh, we don't want to lose people. We want to minister to people. We want to see people discover their purpose and make a difference and find freedom. Help us to know and walk in the Spirit so we can know the things that we're supposed to do, the things we're not supposed to do. Lead us and guide us. We love you. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. If you're encouraged by today's message, be sure and rate us and subscribe on iTunes.